morning, everyone. Merry Christmas to you. Welcome to Victory Life Church. Thank you for being so friendly with your neighbors. Uh, we celebrate Christmas uh, this morning because the God of the heavens and the earth decided to enter human history nearly 2,000 years ago to make a statement. And the Apostle John made, made a very clear statement about what God's intentions were in the book of John, verse 316, uh, verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 16. He said, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that who would ever believe in him would have everlasting life. This was the reason and intention God sent Jesus, and this is why we gather together today uh, to celebrate that fact and to wish one another a Merry Christmas because God wanted to make himself known. And so we gather this morning to express our worship unto God for this reason. Uh, speaking of worship, I do have a few details uh, to talk a little bit about, uh, to share with you a little bit about uh, this family worship experience. This indeed is our Christmas Eve candlelight service. We usually do one in the afternoon and the evening, but we're doing it uh, this morning because Christmas Eve uh, just so happens to land on Sunday morning. And so we are indeed excited to have our families together. Um, and uh, we do know that as we gather with our families and our little ones are beside us, uh, we know that sometimes they might need a break during the worship experience. And we have thought about that for you. And so feel free to exit the sanctuary if you need to do that, if your little one needs to do that. We have rooms that are prepared for you, rooms 105 and 305, just down the hallway uh, to the left as you exit the sanctuary. Um, also, if this is one of your first times here, uh, we are so glad that you have chosen to be here with us and to worship with us this morning. And if you'd like to make a connection with us here at Victory Life Church, when you came in this morning, you likely received one of these uh, Christmas Eve brochures, and on the backside of it is a QR code. If you could just take a picture of that QR code and fill out the form, uh, we will connect with you sometime this week and indeed would consider it such an honor to help you connect with the things of God. And so thank you for worshiping with us as well. So that's all I have this morning in the way of uh, announcements and details and for those of you who have come today to worship the Lord Jesus uh, with your tithes and offerings, uh, you know how you can do that. You can give online, you can give via text, or you can give as you exit the sanctuary this morning. But indeed, thank you for worshiping the Lord with your tithes and offerings for those of you who have come prepared to do that. Can I ask you to stand this morning? And as you do so, can we bow for a word of prayer today together? Father in heaven, we come to you right now to acknowledge the fact that you are real. Although invisible, you are real. And nearly 2,000 years ago, you entered into human history to make sure that we understood that you were real. In fact, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, one of your prophets, Isaiah, proclaimed that unto us a child would be born, a son would be given. And that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting God, and the Prince of Peace. We thank you for fulfilling that promise nearly 2,000 years ago. And we are here this morning to acknowledge that you have done this most miraculous and amazing thing. So we ask that you would meet us here now as we connect with you through worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, 
Amen. Amen. Let's worship this morning. Come on, we put our hands together. We've got a newborn king worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. Angels from the realms of glory wing your light o'er all the earth. You who sang creation's story now proclaim Messiah. Let's bring about worship. Come and worship. Come and worship, worship Christ the newborn King. Shepherds in their fields. Shepherds in their fields abiding, watching over their flocks by night. God with man is now residing, yonder shines the light come and worship come and worship worship christ the newborn king yes emmanuel emmanuel you are the god who saves us you're worthy of all our praise and yes you are Worship Christ, the newborn King. Come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. Aren't you glad he's here? God is with us, even now his love is here. Open your heart to him because his love is here. Come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. is with us even now his love are you ready church his love is here emmanuel emmanuel you are the god who saves us you're worthy of all our praise yes you are Welcome you here, Lord Jesus. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, we lift you up. Emmanuel, worthy Lord. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, we worship you, Lord. Two. 
Let's come and adore the King. Come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the King of angels. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. You are Christ the Lord. Sing choirs of angels. Sing choirs of angels. Sing in exaltation. Oh, sing all ye citizens of heaven above. Glory, glory to God, glory in the highest. Oh, come let us adore Him. Oh, come let us adore Him. Oh, come let us adore Him.
alone is worthy. For he alone is worthy. For he alone is worthy. For he alone is worthy. Christ, the Lord, give him all the glory. We'll give him all the glory. We'll give him all the glory. We'll give him all the glory. Christ. upon this morning your birth as you came to this earth to save all mankind and we worship you oh holy night the star brightly shining it is the night of our dear Savior's birth long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, oh, hear the angel voices, oh, night divine, oh, night, when Christ was born, oh, night divine, oh, night, oh, night divine, truly he taught us to Shall he break for the slave? 
of Orient are bearing gifts we travel so far we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we travel so far 
Well, how do we lead off by addressing the savior of the world? Well, I am of the ever so humble opinion that we first address his court steward and find out what the customs are here in the city of David. Yes, and once that is completed, we could let the court treasurer know that we would prefer to proffer him gifts worthy of his magnificence. And I, my dear Magi, have been working on a poem to present, so long and so eloquent that Homer himself will tremble at his own illiteracy. Yes, yes, and I have just turned my mini harp that I may come to you. This moment is so big, we mustn't fail to rise to the occasion. Ah, uh, fellas, I think we might be missing the mark with all of that. Oh no, I'm afraid you're right. Look at the size of our gifts. At the beginning of our journey, we needed to limit the size of our camel carry-on bags. But now I'm afraid we'll look cheap. Well, I don't know what we could do now. Maybe bigger treasure boxes? We could offer to sacrifice our camel to him. But I don't think that Israelites accept camel sacrifices at their temple. I'm second-guessing everything. Me too. My friends, I too think we missed the mark. So what are we to do? Well, I think we should bow down and worship him. What? You see, we followed that star to meet the Emmanuel, God with us. So if that child in that room is the Emmanuel, we are in the presence of God. Our gifts are nice, and I think they bear meaning. Our desire for decorum is noble, for it shows esteem. Songs and poems are in order, but I think the most appropriate response is to bow down before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I don't remember the last time I bowed down. I don't think I ever have. Nor I. Well, if he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, I will give my gold and kneel before my King. You are right. If he is Emmanuel, God with us, I will give him my frankincense and kneel before the highest priest of heaven. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. If his life is given for us, then I shall give him myrrh for his burial and kneel before my soon-to-be-risen Savior. Amen. 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 Well, thank you to our wise men and their camel for reminding us that is the season, it is the season, to be changed, to be changed. They had a change here. Right on the platform before us, they recognized that all the best the world had to offer was not really worthy of the king. The best thing that they could offer was themselves, and that was the change that they experienced. Welcome once more to our Christmas Eve service. I'm Pastor Matt. We're so glad you're worshiping with us. Merry Christmas to you. No one who played a part in this story of Christ's birth was left unchanged. In fact, we talked last week about how everyone in the story, or almost everyone as we'll find this week, left more joyful than they began. Because when God intervenes in human history, people are changed and changed for the better. I almost entitled today's sermon the same as last week's sermon. Tis the season to be joyful, because the wise men had the best of it. The Bible is going to tell us in just a moment in Matthew chapter 2, if you want to turn there, that when they found what they were looking for, the wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
Now, the thing I noticed about rejoiced exceedingly with great joy is that my fourth grade English teacher would mark that wrong because it'd be redundant, right? But they were pumped that they had found what they were looking for. And that's why Christmas is such a special holiday. It's still changing people, even today. I even wore a tie today. It changes people. I tell you, the, the, the proof that Christmas still changes people is the proliferation of Christmas carols and songs. Nobody is singing a Valentine's Day carol. My Halloween playlist got really stale after Thriller and Monster Mash. It took Thanksgiving 400 years to get its first carol. Gobble, gobble, one. Gobble, gobble, two. Gobble, gobble, me. Gobble, gobble, you. It's a terrible song. 400 years, and that's the best they could come up with for a Thanksgiving carol. Put it in your Google machine. You'll find it later. Here we have all these carols about God really changing everything. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Noel, the first Noel, which is to, to say he is born, but say it joyfully if you follow the history of the word. No, the, the songs are still being written. The carols are still being sung. People still expect something different at Christmas time because when God intervenes in human history, people are changed. Even bad Christmas carols don't ruin Christmas. I know George Michael tried, but he could not ruin Christmas. Just stop giving your heart away. It'll be fine. But, but the songs of this season continue to inspire because God is still intervening in the lives of people. It's the only question is how they're going to respond to him. Are they going to allow him to change them, or are they going to remain unchanged? Well, the story we're about to read about these wise men rejoicing exceedingly with great joy is because they were changed. They allowed God's intervention to change who they were and what they were doing. But we're also going to see another character today, someone who has remained unchanged. And I'd like to posit this to you today. Maybe merely your attendance in this room is signaling from God to you that today is the day to be changed. Maybe the fact that you're here today could be construed as an intervention for the Lord, something to be embraced. Maybe you can make your way to rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. But to do that, you might have to take a clue from the wise men. If you have your Bibles and you're in Matthew 2, great. If you're not, no worries. It'll show up on the screen for you. Let's read the story of these wise men, how they were changed and what they found. It reads in chapter 2, verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it has been written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall, she shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time at which the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I love the story of the wise men because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that these wise men from the east would come and seek out this newborn king. Yes, there are ancient writings from the Parthian Empire that expect that there will be a forever king that comes out of the Westlands. To them, it would be West in order to go to Jerusalem. There, there are extant writings that show that even the followers of Zoroaster, Zoroastrians were looking for a savior to come for the West, but I, I, I had trouble here understanding what was going on. You say, Pastor Matt, it's really simple. God was drawing these wise men. He put a star in the sky that they'd noticed that doesn't belong there, and then this star was such a powerful astrological phenomena that, that the star moved and eventually led them directly to where they, they wanted to go. What, what's, what's so crazy about that? Well, it's, it's not crazy. It's not crazy that God draws people to himself. God is always giving us signs. He's putting people in our way. He's putting circumstances in our path to lead us and draw us to him or back to him. That I am convinced of. Having pastored now for almost 20 years, I, I have seen over and over again how God is consistently putting together signs, putting together moments in people's lives to draw them to him or back to him. And people tell me those stories all the time. No one becomes a Christian because they felt like it one day. People become a Christian because God has been wooing them. So, so that part's not surprising. What's surprising is who gets the message here. Last week we saw the shepherds get the message. That was a surprise because they were at the bottom of their religio-socio-economic strata. They were people who shouldn't have got the message, yet they did, which signaled to all of us that the Christ is for all of us. But Matthew wrote for a different reason than Luke. Every gospel writer that put pen to paper had an intended audience in the original. And I've been told since I was a young uh, Bible student that, that Matthew wrote in order to convince the Jewish people that their Messiah had come. So why would he have a bunch of Gentiles seeking out the Savior? Why include this story? This was a time in history where the Jewish people were incredibly xenophobic. They didn't like people from other countries. It was them versus the Gentiles. Yet these magi are Gentiles. Why is God drawing them? Not only that, but they're magi. What's in that name? Magic. These were people who were very learned. They went to ac academic schools. They, they, they studied all things from science to astronomy, but they also studied astrology and what the Jewish people would have considered sorcery. Now, that was normal for the ancient world, whether you were a Druid in England, whether you were a priest in Greece, or whether you were a wise man in Parthia. All of those mixed, both sorcery and magic, astronomy, astrology, learning, reading, higher education. Think Oxford meets Hogwarts, and you'll kind of figure it out. But the Jewish people couldn't have anything to do with astrologers. The Jewish people couldn't have anything to do with people who were dabbling in sorcery. So on two major fronts here, these magi are not good witnesses to the Messiah if you're trying to convince Jewish people that he is who he says he is. So it troubled me. I read it, and I reread it. I'm like, what is going on here? What's the story? 
Why are they included? And then it dawned on me, duh, Matt, the wise men are not the only entity in the story that get a sign. Someone else gets a sign. The other person in the story who gets a sign is Herod. There's two entities here that get a sign. The wise men get a star, but the current king of Israel gets three Parthian rulers coming to his court going, where's the Messiah? I know he's here. Herod got a sign just the way the wise men got a sign. Herod got a sign just the way they did, except they reacted incredibly different. Herod begins to scheme, rub his hands together, maybe chuckle in an angry voice. But the wise men, on the other hand, they continue to look for what God's intervention means in their life. And it began to dawn on me what this story is really all about. It's not necessarily a proof text for Jewish people to know their Messiah has come. It's a challenge. And the challenge is simple. When God begins to intervene, are you going to see it as an opportunity or are you going to see it as a threat? That's what this story is all about. The wise men saw the intervention of God. They looked at that star and said, God is intervening in human history, which is safe. God might even be inter- intervening in Jewish history. That's still safe. But why have we seen the star? Why is the sign given to us? Why has this come to us? God is intervening in human history, but it seems that he's intervening in our history. See, the wise men see this as an opportunity, but Herod saw it as a threat. It's neat to go from Luke last week to the wise men and Herod this week. The, the shepherds remind us in the book of Luke that, that God is for all of us, that God loves all of us, that unto us a son is given, but, but, but this is different. These guys are all at the very highest end of human power, prestige, and wealth. Magi or wise men were not just magi or wise men in Persia or Babylon or, or Media or all those areas in the Fertile Crescent. These wise men, these magi were so learned that there are Greek and Roman rulers who sought them out to be their counselors. We see magi, wise men in the book of Acts with governors and kings advising them. The gifts that these wise men brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I was reading up on that this week, they they were gifts that could have only been acquired in a royal court. There is no middle class at this time in history. These are gifts that are so extravagant that you could go to the Apple store, you could buy out all of the newest things, and you could present that to somebody, it wouldn't even come close to the extravagance of these gifts. Just wouldn't. And of course, these wise men are important enough that they get an audience with the king of Israel, Herod. you got to be pretty important to get an audience with Herod. And the reason you have to be important to get an audience with Herod is because Herod is no bit player. Herod was the personal friend of Caesar Augustus. You see, back in the succession wars after Julius Caesar said, et tu brute, there was a a problem. Who was going to rule Rome? Mark Anthony and Cleopatra were on one side of things, and a guy named Octavian, who came to be known as Caesar Augustus, he was on the other side. Herod aligned himself with Mark Anthony and Cleopatra until just the right time, and then switched his allegiance to the man who became known as Augustus Caesar, helping win for him the eastern part of his empire. Israel was his prize. Herod was no bit player. He was a cunning politician, a powerful man, and one of the most brilliant architects of the ancient world. 
He built the temple complex in Jerusalem, which the Western Wall can still be seen to this day. He built Caesarea Maritima, which is one of the most beautiful ancient cities of the world. And he built the Fortress of Masada, which if you ever see the movie, is pretty crazy, but it, it, it's, it's amazing. Herod had reached the pinnacle of human existence had everything the world had to offer, but the wise men did too. We are in the halls now of the rich and powerful. Yet some see this intervention of God as an opportunity, while others view it as a threat. Here we are at the highest end of the socioeconomic strata. Everybody's getting a sign from God. One entity sees it as a threat to be, to be thrown away. And another sees it as an opportunity to change everything that they hold dear. The Bible says that Herod was troubled that God was intervening and all Jerusalem with him. And if you know anything about history, when King Herod is mad, all life is bad for all people. And that's the real issue, the issue that we've already spoke about. Herod doesn't care if God intervenes in history. Herod doesn't care if God intervenes in someone else's history, just like us today. If God intervenes in history and we see something on the news and we think that has to be the hand of God, we say, oh, that's great. If, if somebody comes to us and says, God has really changed my life, we watch a baptism and someone talks about all the ways that God's brought them joy, we say, oh, good for them. But when God tries to break into our life history, our response is often, oh, no, not me. Don't come after me. You're a threat to me. And that's why this story is so powerful, and we're not going to read the rest of what Herod does to try to secure his kingdom, but the, the message is clear. The wise men saw the intervention of God as an opportunity, and Herod saw it as a threat. To a proud man or woman, the intervention of God is always a threat. Intervention by God is always a problem to be swatted away like a fly. Herod was trying to hold on to his big kingdom, well, the wise men ended up giving away part of theirs. And that's something that is true across human history. When God is at work and when God starts to knock on the heart's door of men and women and says, if you let me come in, things will be changed. The question is, how will that human heart respond? God's got my attention and I'm open? Or God is a threat and I'm closed? I've been on a bit of a C.S. Lewis kick recently. Most of you might know him as the writer of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lewis is one of the greatest authors of the 20th century, one of my favorite reads. He was also a committed atheist for the early part of his life. In fact, he had good reason to be a committed atheist. He had a mother die when he was very, very young, a cold father. He was sent away to boarding school where the other boys picked on him and were mean to him. And he had a real reason to be mad at God and decide he didn't exist because he fought in the trenches of World War II and saw his friends die in the dirt. Lewis had every reason to say, God, you're not real, and I want nothing to do with you. But when he came back from World War I and he was working his way to becoming an Oxford professor, which he eventually got to, he was reading the classics. And he would read more and more and more, whether it came from theists or non-theists, and he would think, God's real. Ugh. God's real. Ah! Whether he was reading Cicero or, 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 or Plutarch, it didn't matter. God is real. 
He once wrote before or just after becoming a theist, after believing in God, one of the greatest lines in history, he says, a young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. See, God's intervention in his life was to be swatted away like a fly. I can't posit that. I can't handle it. Nope, stop. You get no part of my mind, God. You get no part of my spirit. You get no part of my attention. That's a threat because I may have to change. Well, the change ends up good for these wise men, doesn't it? They had room in their heart for the newborn king. They were ready to receive him. And we mustn't downplay the fact that these wise men allowed God's intervention in their life to change their plans. When they saw that star, whatever they were doing, whatever they'd been about, whatever were the goals of their life were dropped. And they packed up and they followed it. See, when God intervenes in your life, that's the moment at which you should drop what you're doing and try to seek truth. What is he trying to do? What is he attempting to get my attention for? See, that, that's a problem for us because some of us even right now are feeling threatened by the fact that we're sitting here in church listening to the Bible and a preacher. It's dangerous. My mind will not be changed. But what if this is the day that your mind is to be changed? What if this is the day that you are to be as open-minded about faith as you are in all other aspects of life? What, what if it is that day? If it is that day, allow God to change your plans. Go down the road just a little bit to see what he might be speaking to you for. Because the wise men then end up rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Does that describe you today? When was the last time that you had a reason to rejoice exceedingly with great joy? See, these guys had all the world had to offer. They were going to the best schools. They had the most money. They had power. They had prestige. They had a voice at the table. Yet when they saw God intervene, they dropped what they were doing and began to search for truth. Because you can have all that academia offers in the world. You can have all the wealth in the world, all the power in the world, all the prestige in the world, all the influence in the world. But if you have those things without the one who created you, you don't have anything. That's what the wise men tell us. They had everything that we could want, yet they had nothing until they found the Savior. That caused them to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Herod, when confronted with his sign, looks down. I must hold on to what I have now. The wise men look up and they let go and say, my plans don't matter. Let me follow this search for truth. Lewis once wrote, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you'll get neither comfort nor truth. You see, the wise men dropped their plans, and they began to seek something new. Herod was left clinging to his kingdom when he died in agony. But the story of the wise men lives on forever because of what they did. But their story did not end with them seeing the intervention of God as an opportunity nor did their story end when they began to drop their plan and search for truth. There was one more change that needed to be made, and that's simple. When they found the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, 
the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. They exchanged objects of worship. Whatever they'd worshipped before, whatever was their life's aim before, whatever was important before, was no longer important. There's a word in the Greek for worship. It's called proskuneo, and the New Testament was written in Greek. Proskuneo means to lie face down in the ground in worship. But by the time that the book of Matthew was written, it wasn't used that way anymore. It was a colloquialism. If I look at you and say, yeah, I had my nose to the grindstone, you know that I'm working hard. You don't actually assume that I'm you know, looking at a grindstone to see if the flower's coming out at the right consistency, Right? So when the Bible says that they came to Herod and said, we've come to worship the king, well, that could mean anything. That could mean singing a, singing a song. That could mean reciting a poem. That could mean playing the lyre. It could mean anything. So when they get to this house and find the Savior of the world there because the star, the sign that they've been given, had been followed and delivered, they actually did worship that way. Once again, Matthew, the king of redundancy, says they fell down and worshiped. They fell down and worshiped face down, literally. That's how excited they are to see this king. And then, having reached their object of worship, they laid their gold, their frankincense, and their myrrh in the dust of the ground. Why? Because these men recognize what all of us ought to, that we have a God who pursues us a God that wants to let us in on what he's doing, a God who created us for his good purpose and wants to bring us in for that good purpose. As we learned last week, a God that is actually interested in bringing us joy. He wants you to be joyful. A God who had come for them. And they realized whatever God had for them, that was the best. Job's friend Eliphaz once said to him, if you lay your gold in the dust then the Almighty will be your gold and precious silver. So I ask you simply today, my friends, what is your gold? What's your gold? You see, I'm confident of something, so confident, that you'll be given signs and moments in your life to turn or return to God. That will continue to happen. I'm also confident that you'll see that one of two ways, either as an opportunity or something to be swatted away. Can't be too careful who you listen to on Sunday mornings. Can't be too, too careful what you read from Sunday to Saturday. Can't be too careful to open your mind and your heart to that Christmas carol that speaks to your soul. Can't be too careful. I know that there's many of you who are assessing threat level every time you see a sign or hear a word from God. But my friends, I would ask you, can you be as open-minded about God as you are about all other things? Regardless of your life's history, regardless of, well, not every Christian was perfect, regardless, my parents were Christians and they weren't perfect. I'm glad you're perfect. Could you be as open-minded about what God might be trying to do? See, it stands to reason if he created you, he did so with a purpose. Therefore, you should probably seek truth. If you see God's sign in your life in any way in the days to come, will you follow it? Would you be open-minded enough to say, yes, I will go that direction? But most important, and the one that is why we treat the intervention of God as a threat, 
we're scared of what change it will make. Or more importantly, what exchange we'll have to make. So I ask you again, what is your gold? For the youngest people in the room, my elementary school kids, boy, is your devices, are, are they your gold? To my middle schoolers in the room today, what's your gold? How people view you and what they think of you? To the juniors and seniors in the room, is it your grades and where your grades can take you? To my young adults in the room, is it finding that perfect spouse, the one that will finally make you feel all the feelings? To my young parents in the room, is it finally getting ahead? To my older adults in the room, is it fully stocking that 401k? Or to anybody in the room, is your gold that which you numb yourself to life with? All of us are bowing down today to something. All of us have something that makes us tick, something that we base all of our decisions on. Our plans, our ego, our brains, our pride, the people we want to impress, the God of gain. But if you want to enjoy this life that God has given you, then it's time for your life to produce a carol. Time for your life to produce a Noel. Something to be joyful about that comes from heaven and that lasts forever. But you have to recognize the signs when they come. You have to drop your plans when you see the sign. And you have to make that most painful of exchanges to say, not your will, but not my will, but yours. Let go of earth and strive for heaven. Would you bow your heads and pray with me today? Father God, you are the joy bringer and the joy giver. The one who has everything we need in the palm of your hand. So I pray in this place for all of my brothers and sisters, both seen and unseen, both known and unknown, that their heart would prepare you room. That the intervention of God even today would not be seen as a threatening thing, but an opportunity to change. And that change has the potential to bring about the greatest joy they've ever imagined. I pray that before we leave this place today, multiple people in this place would be declaring their first Noel, saying he is born with joy. And the joy is not just for the world. The joy is not just for that people group or that person, but that joy is for me. God's been wooing me and trying to get my heart, and he can have it because I feel his presence today. If that's you today, I'm not going to pray a special prayer with you, as you might expect. When we begin to sing Joy to the World in the first Noel, maybe for the first time in your life or for the first time in a long time, why don't you sing it as a prayer? Let my heart prepare him room. Let my heart receive the king. Let me declare a Noel that a joyful birth has taken place, both the birth of Christ that signals redemption and a birth in my heart 
of his salvation. Would you turn to him today and invite him in? Lord, we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders wonders of his love the first Noel, the angels did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, in fields where they lay keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Noel, 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 born is the King of Israel. They looked up and saw a star shining in the east beyond them far and to the earth it gave great light and so we continued both day and night Noel, Noel Noel, Noel born is the king of 
Israel. Then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord that hath made the heaven and earth of naught and with his blood mankind has bought Noel, 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 Noel Born is the King of Israel Noel, 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 Noel Born is the King of Israel Lord, may you be worshipped in everything we do this Christmas season. Noel. As is tradition at Victory Life Church on our Christmas Eve service, we like to gather around in a circle and finish our service by singing Silent Night together. Many of you may have received a candle when you walked in, and that candle will be lit from the front by Pastor Otto, Pastor Matthew, and Pastor Peter will start it in the back. This morning, if you're unable to join the circle, hold your candle high, and one of the pastors or one of the ushers will come to you as we sing Silent Night. We'll sing the first verse, the second verse, and third verse, and then we'll finish with the first verse one more time, and Pastor Otto will close us. Would you please make a circle in the room this morning? <clears throat> first verse we'll sing a cappella. excuse me, the first verse we'll sing with music, and then we'll just do our voices. Sing 
Well, just look around at all the lights in the room in the midst of this darkness. May this remind you of the words of the Apostle John when he wrote about Jesus Christ in John chapter 1. It says this, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, John wrote these words for you and me, that we would know that Jesus is the light that indeed does overcome darkness. So if you have a dark moment, may you lean into Christ Jesus so that he can lead you out of darkness if you're willing to follow his light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for making yourself known. Thank you for being our light. Help us to recognize your light in our lives during this Christmas season. We thank you for your light. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said together, amen, amen. Once again, thank you for joining us in worship today. Feel free to blow out your candles and dispose of them as you exit this morning. Once again, Merry Christmas, everyone. You are dismissed. Thank you.